the Birth Trauma Mama podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Summers, a licensed therapist and birth trauma survivor. This is a space where we talk about what it means to experience trauma during a time that we expected to be one of the best of our lives. This stuff is dark and it's messy, but we're here to shine a light on it. We're here to hold your hand as you walk through the darkness. We're here to show you that the light exists and we're going to help you find it. So wherever you are, take a deep breath, settle in, and let's do this. Welcome to the Listener Story Series on the Birth Trauma Mama podcast. We created this series as a space where we get to hold and honor so many of the equally beautiful and devastating stories from those in our community. We hope that these stories will provide comfort and connection in what can be such an isolating and lonely time. As always, please take care of yourselves and go gently whenever you choose to listen. And a reminder that you can always find an outline of the episode in the show notes if you want to decide on the content before diving in. Hey, Hannah, welcome to the Birth Trauma Mama podcast. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for just having this platform for people like me and a place for people to connect. I know it means a lot. Yeah, of course. So why don't we dive right in? Um, Can you start wherever feels comfortable? That's like trying to conceive pregnancy, whatever feels pertinent to your story, but just tell us a little bit from the beginning about your story. Yeah. So my story starts like a couple weeks into the COVID pandemic. Um, My husband and I were trying and we found out we were pregnant really shortly after everything shut down. Um, And as first time parents, not only did we have a lot of questions about everything pregnancy related, but also like what's happening in the world and yeah, it's such so a terrible, questions. terrible time with all of the uncertainty in the world really amping up the uncertainty of being pregnant and trying to go through this process. Yeah, it was nerve wracking. And I just felt like I could only do ever, like what I could and what was in my control. And that was just social distancing, wearing a mask. Like yeah. I was really fearful of you know, my baby and just things I'd been reading about COVID. So really throughout my pregnancy, like that was the biggest stressor was COVID and what could happen. Yeah. Um, That was actually the first time my OB had ever like brought up anxiety and we talked about anxiety medication. And at the time it just felt right that I was feeling like these worries were kind of out of my control. And that was a really good choice for me at the time to go on Lexapro and just kind of help me have better peace of mind throughout pregnancy. Yes, it can be such a helpful support. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah. Um, So my pregnancy was relatively normal. Um, Not all of my checkups were in person given COVID, um, but I did still have enough. I went in for scans and the only thing that was really like quote unquote abnormal was baby was measuring big, um, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, just, we were kind of keeping an eye on maybe getting induced early because at the time 
we didn't know the gender yet, but we knew the baby was like 90th percentile or above. So um, we got to the point. Yes. um, We got to the point where like my blood pressure started to creep up a little bit and my OB and I just decided like 38 and a half weeks would probably be a good cap. Like baby was plenty big. Didn't want to risk preeclampsia. And at the time she said we could schedule a C-section or an induction. And I chose induction. And that's always kind of one of the things that I look back and wonder what if, because that kind of played a role in what ended up happening. Yeah. Um, But of course, I just made the best decision that I could at the time. Exactly. So we went in for the induction and it was, you know, going as planned. Um, I was getting, I was on Pitocin and I had been in labor for over 24 hours and still, I think I was only like six centimeters. So the OB who was at the hospital said, you know, I think at this point, C-section might be a good idea. Um, We were really just wanting to prevent an emergency C-section. Yeah. And that was just kind of my birth plan going in was I didn't want any emergencies happening. Ironically. (laughs) Right. Ironically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's one bar I couldn't quite reach, but yeah. Um, I was actually like very okay with it. And I knew a lot of amazing mothers and birth stories that have come from C-section. And yeah. So it was late at night when we started and it was just my husband and I there given the restrictions. And I remember like being in the OR and, you know, just the sensations of, if anyone's familiar with the C-section, just kind of like the tugging and um, being told we had a boy, which was really exciting since we hadn't known. And then honestly, like, I just kind of remember bits and pieces from there. I remember feeling really nauseous and needing to throw up and just feeling disoriented. And at the time, still just like thinking this is normal. I'd never had a baby before. Right. How are you supposed to know? Yeah. And understandably the medical staff was not you know exactly narrating minute by minute everything that was happening they were working on me um so as I tell my story a lot of this I've kind of learned and pieced together after but what had happened is I was hemorrhaging and they thought they had the bleeding stopped enough to close my incision and me and my husband and my son went into the PACU and I still just was just feeling disoriented. And I remember being extremely thirsty and just begging, begging for water and everyone was just ignoring me. And the two things I remember probably the most clearly were the look on my husband's face. He was standing like over my shoulder, holding onto our son. And the OB said, we need to start mass transfusion protocol. And I remember like a thought going through my head, like, that's probably not good. But I wasn't 
like mentally there enough to understand that I was still losing massive amounts of blood. And, you know, when you're receiving blood, they have to like call out the numbers to match. Yep. So I was receiving like whole blood and platelets and everyone was just shouting numbers. And I was still just begging for water. It was a nurse that gave me an ice chip, which felt so like I was so relieved for that one ice chip at the time. Yeah. Um, but I kind of knew just based on my husband's face that something was not right. And I found out later that at that point it was too late to go to get a hysterectomy because they believed I would probably bleed out during that procedure if we did that. So they eventually um, brought in an interventional radiologist and we just kind of had like every little bit of bad luck as we could. So it was like 2 a.m. So they were home on call. So Mm -hmm. we had to wait for them to get to the hospital. And I remember being like a nurse finally came in and took our son from my husband so he could be fed and cared for. And I remember them taking me to the next place to have this procedure and just looking at my husband saying, like, I think you should call my parents. Like, this doesn't seem good. And the next thing I remember was two days later um, in the ICU, just in a ton of pain and very confused. And I guess meeting my son for the first time. And the nurses were so amazing, wanting my family to be together and knowing that me being with my son was really important. But we tried that for a few hours and it just, your body just needs rest. It needs time. Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of when like the guilt started of, you know, I have this new baby and I don't even know what part of the hospital he's in. And I'm here by myself with no family because of COVID and no loved ones and still not even knowing what had happened. So I was in the hospital for almost a month. Um, And in that time, I learned that I had lost 80% of my blood. So about four liters. And the biggest complication was that because of that, my kidneys failed. And I was on dialysis for a couple months. Um, I think at first, I it took me like weeks to even understand that. I don't know if it was just like disbelief that that had happened yeah. or just the fact that my body was in shock. But I honestly like knew nothing about dialysis before this. I was 26. None of my family has been on it. Yeah. Again, why would you? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure if everyone knows like what your GFR is, but it's essentially the calculation of your kidney function, which probably a lot of mothers listening to this podcast would be familiar with. Yeah. But when a couple days after my son's birth, mine was at four. And I said, like, is that good? Is that where it's supposed to be? And they said, 
it should probably be above 90. Yeah. So that was kind of a shock. Um, and as you start dialysis, you just feel really yucky and terrible. And mm-hmm. I think those times when I was on dialysis at the hospital, I mean, that's hours at a time. Looking back now, I think that's when like depression started to sink in a little bit. And I was trying very hard for my family to put on a happy face and, you know, like everyone says, at least you're alive and at least your baby's okay. And I was obviously very, very grateful for that, but it was very hard and very isolating. And hard for my family, too, not being able to come and see me. And there was just so many questions. So I really think with my story, the postpartum period was definitely the hardest. Yeah. Um, being on dialysis. And they did discharge me once right before Christmas but with my kidneys not working my blood pressure was really really high and I ended up back in the ER and back in the hospital so that period of time when I was on dialysis and when I was not able to take care of my new baby was definitely the hardest just Yeah. And what was their policy for, was he still in the hospital with you and how were you able to see him or what did that look like for you guys once the initial kind of ICU stay and stuff like that had resolved? Yeah. So after about a week, um, when they said I could leave the ICU, they sent me back down to like the floor with all the postpartum patients. But I am grateful that the hospital did bend the rules a little bit and they let one adult bring him back every day to see me. Oh, wow. Which was great. Um, Unfortunately, that second time, so after I had been discharged and came back because of blood pressure, I was no longer on the postpartum floor and I was on a floor with positive COVID patients. So then that was not an option. Yeah. Which I wouldn't have wanted him there anyways, but still. Yeah. I think he was about a month old when I even changed his diaper for the first time. Like those things just really hit hard. Um, And even just the difference, like when I was in the ICU, they were very concerned with keeping me alive. And when I got back down to the postpartum floor, they were like, you know, let's look at your incision. And my incision hadn't even been like washed at that point because the nurses and the doctors on different floors were concerned about different things. Yep. Um, And then, you know, I'm seeing the OB doctors who are following up about like my blood pressure. And then I'd have questions about my kidneys, but they weren't quite sure because that's not their area. And then I'd see the nephrologist and they didn't know how to answer all my questions because it was related to the birth. and. (sighs) Yeah, very such hard siloed, siloed care makes it yes. really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my hospital did send 
the psychologist in almost every day um, to chat with my husband and I, which I appreciate at the time. Yeah. Um, so then when were you discharged your second time? Was that like in relation? Because I know you mentioned Christmas. So in relation to like the holidays. Yeah. So I got, came home for good. It was either New Year's Eve or the day before New Year's Eve. Okay. And I definitely at that point, um, my kidneys had kind of woken up a little bit. I was still on dialysis, but I started losing a lot of the like water weight, like that you retain. Yep. Um, And so that led to my blood pressure evening out a bit, which was good. We were kind of out of that scary. I think at one point my top number was like 190. So I was able to kind of wean off the blood pressure medication. And I'm just not good, like most people, with, like, the unknown. And <laughs> right away, I just wanted answers. And I didn't want to blame anybody. I just knew that if we were ever going to consider growing our family, I wanted to know exactly what had happened and if it could happen again, Yeah, how it happened. And that turned out to be a pretty frustrating experience, um, which I've heard from a lot of other birth trauma survivors. Yes, because women's health doesn't have as much research as it should or resources or understanding of these complications. Yes. And everything in the hospital notes was very brief. And they said I had uterine acne. So my uterus did not contract back down, and that led to this massive hemorrhage. So that was that was my experience of my first. Yeah, and uterine acne is unfortunately, I think it is the uh, most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage. Um, and you obviously had a very severe case. Um, with mass transfusion protocol and losing 80% of your blood volume, that is a ton. Um, yeah. And it's frustrating to not know why, like why you had the uterine atony, right? There's always, even when we get, get these diagnoses, and some people don't even get diagnoses, we just have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, okay, but like, why did this random complication happen? Why did my uterus not contract back down? Like mm-hmm. what caused this? And so often it's like, well, it could be a combination of these 50 different things and we don't know which one. Yeah. The the little explanation I was given was that my son was big. He was nine over nine pounds and I had been on Pitocin and in labor for a really long time. My uterus was likely very tired. Yep. And of course, then I kept asking myself, what if I had just scheduled a C-section? Like, what mm-hmm. if I wasn't in that labor for so long? Like, would things have been very different? Those are the questions that I think so many of us ask ourselves. And we really, especially early on, I think you really get stuck in those spirals of mm-hmm. what ifs and how could I have changed this? Because then if we come to a conclusion, we can say, Oh well, I, if I if I choose differently in the future, if I'm still able to have children, then I will have control over this, and that feels so much better 
when we can like blame ourselves for a decision that we made, as awful as that part feels, that feels so much better than to say like, it's, it's the roll of a dice. Exactly. Dice is die. Roll of a die. Roll of dice. Oh, it's weird. Anyway, either one. Yeah. People know what I mean. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, when you talked about like, you know, going in circles in this cycle, like everything in my life felt like that. Like I kept asking myself, what if I had scheduled a C-section and what if this and what if that? And I, my OB hooked me up with a therapist like shortly after I got out of the hospital and it was actually, I mean, it was a very good experience. And one of the things we talked about was that, you know, bringing up those questions that probably will never get answers. And just the, also the repetitive thoughts of like, why me? Everyone else, of course, not everyone else, but you feel like everyone else goes to the hospital, has a baby, comes home two days later with said baby. Yep. And just, I mean, that's one of the reasons that like a community like this is so important because it really does make you feel less alone. And I get so many comments from people saying like, wow, I've never heard of a a story as bad as yours, or that's like the worst, worst experience I've ever heard. And I know people don't mean to make you feel bad, but it does. And Mm -hmm. knowing that, like, that makes you feel like, wow, I'm so unlucky. Like, Mm -hmm. why me? But it's, there's a lot of us out there. And like you said, like, it just needs, like, how do we live in this country and still have women who are experiencing this so regularly? Yeah, absolutely. So how did you start to, so I heard that you got hooked up with a therapist and like Mm -hmm. started to work on a lot of this stuff. What were the other factors that contributed to you being able to like start healing from this experience? So that was probably the biggest one, um, having someone kind of just outside of the experience to talk to. Like, yeah. of course, like my family checked in on me every day. My friends did. But speaking with someone who, honestly, like I would have never expected, like he's a male therapist. I'm like, you've never had birth. Like you've never had a birth trauma. But yeah. The other factors, as funny as this sounds, like I'm in the Midwest and this was all happening in the winter. And when spring came, it was like my mood, like really lifted a lot. Yeah. Um, You know, being able to go out on walks and just feel the sunshine. And it's funny now, like every time the days get shorter and it snows, like just the season of winter, just kind of brings back those feelings from that winter of 2020. Yeah. And thankfully to that spring, like we got a COVID vaccine, things started to kind of open up again. I didn't have to be as worried about, you know, everybody getting sick. And yeah. So those were all, I would say, probably the biggest factors of starting to move the right direction. I did get off dialysis after a few months. Good. Which I was really worried about how I was going to go back to my job if I was 
getting, I think I was doing it three days a week for three hours at a time. And I obviously didn't know how I could work if that was the case. Yeah. So I learned that if your kidney function is below 15%, you're typically on dialysis. And one of the long-term impacts of this is as you get older, obviously your body functions kind of decrease with age. And a normal person with good kidneys like can live their whole life and not have to worry about it. But since mine are already injured and I have chronic kidney disease, the older I get, the greater my chance for going back on dialysis is. And that's something that is still hard for me to to feel. Like I in my head I'm past that. It's over. I did it. I'm done. And then that idea sneaks in that maybe not. Maybe you're not done with that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, these long-term impacts that we see when we feel like we're healing emotionally, physically, all of the things, there's stuff that still comes up where we're like, crap, this does impact me for the rest of my life. And I think Mm -hmm. that comes with a lot of grief. Yes. So when you said grief, I feel like that's a good transition into my second pregnancy. Yeah. Um. We were, it was a very big decision if we were going to try to have another pregnancy or not, um, especially not quite knowing, like you said, what caused it and if it would happen again. Um, but we talked with high-risk OBs and my OB, who I have a really great relationship with, and decided that with it being a high-risk pregnancy and... I guess for lack of a better word, it would be monitored a lot more closely that it was something we wanted to do. And so I started seeing another therapist um, during this pregnancy, so early 2023. And that was like the best decision I've ever made um, because I realized that I still had so much grief and trauma related to my first birth. Yeah. That I thought I had handled and I thought that was so in the past. But really, I wasn't as nervous about giving birth again as I was grieving the birth of my son and how it went. And I didn't ever have the opportunity to nurse him. And I didn't get to be there for his first bath. And I didn't get to hold him for days and weeks. And I was really worried about if I do those things with another baby, how is that going to make me feel about my beautiful toddler that I have? And so there was a lot still. There probably is still like even more to. Always. I mean, grief is a lifelong process, right? We grieve our experiences and our losses for the rest of our life. It just ebbs and flows and kind of changes, Mm -hmm. um, but it's always still there. Yeah. Yeah. It was very much, I thought talking to her would be all in preparation to have another child, but it was very much still 
talking about and unpacking what happened with my son. Yeah. But it was, I mean, like I said, it was the best decision I could have made. Like I felt very supported and I'm very much a person that doesn't like conflict and doesn't want to make other people feel bad. And she really encouraged me to like speak up to my doctors when I needed to and to advocate for what I needed in this pregnancy and in this delivery, which is, I think, just a skill that everyone needs and everyone deserves. So we, this time, the second time around, decided to have a scheduled C-section and it went very well and my daughter was born. And a lot of people have asked me, like, you know, did that feel like a redeeming experience? And do you feel like so much better now that you had a normal birth? And actually, no. Yeah. I am thankful that it went better this time. But I still think about my son's birth every day. Yeah. And I think I heard you say, like, if the best day of your life was also the worst day of your life. And that just resonates so much with me that it's very hard to like to have that be the same exact experience. Yeah. It's really hard to pull that apart and to have to live with that Mm -hmm. as your experience, your first experience with birth. Yeah. I, especially, yeah, when his birthday rolls around and, you know, I think about how, amazing and wonderful he is like and now I've had years with him yeah I still can't like forget about that first 30 days that I didn't have with him yeah and I still when I see people bring their baby home from the hospital even though I did that this time I still feel like a sense of loss that he went home without me and yeah, because our, the future experiences that some have, like you have had, don't somehow erase the traumatic ones. I mean, if they did, that'd be amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if it somehow took away the trauma um, or the grief and it just, it doesn't. And sometimes it really does amp up the grief because it's like a compa- it's a very clear comparison of all of the things that you didn't get to have with your son that you're now getting to have with your daughter. And of course you would never give that up. You want Mm -hmm. to be able to have those things with your daughter, but also it is a stark difference and reminder of all of the things that you didn't get to have. Um, And I think that when we don't know that or see that coming or kind of prepare is not the right word. There's not a whole lot we can do to like prepare for grief, but the expectation that it might come with complicated emotions rather than just this like healing redemptive experience, even if everything goes exactly as you'd want it to. Mm -hmm. So I I love the way that you spoke about that. Yeah. It's, it's very much like people expect you to, you know, be thankful that you know, everybody's here and be thankful that it went better the second time. And it's so much more nuanced than that. It's just so much. Yeah. I wish, like you said, I wish it was like an experience that could erase the first, like 
you know, whether it's the physical things I'm still dealing with or the mental or the emotional, but in a way, I mean, that experience was even more impactful than my second. And I think only people who've like been in this role really understand it. And it's hard for people to, it's hard to like communicate exactly how it feels and exactly what you need. So, yeah, it's, it is very difficult to articulate and to verbalize again, like what you need, how you'll feel supported. Um, but you know, I, I think you do a great job of articulating your story and what it was like to navigate through that. That's like a month is a, is a very long time to be in the hospital postpartum, Mm -hmm. um, and to have to navigate through while it is fantastic that your hospital figured out a way for you to be able to see your son, it's, it's not the same. Like you're, you're literally on dialysis and your body is struggling. So yes, you see your son, but you can't like engage in the way that you want to, you can't take care of your baby. And then you went back to the hospital and you weren't even able to see him at that point. And so there is just so much loss and extended loss for those experiences that you didn't get to have. And I really think that your story is a beautiful example of having a second, a subsequent experience that is controlled, is what you wanted, is healing in its own right. And yet it sits next to the story of your son and the Mm -hmm. trauma that you experienced with that birth. And they are their own stories and they have, I mean, they have beauty in their own right, but again, we would take trauma away if we could. And that's yeah. just not, that's not how these stories go, unfortunately. Yeah. I think I've learned from all of this. I mean, not only does it put life in perspective, but it's really pushed me to not compare in life Yeah, yeah. because I spent so much time after my son was born, comparing my experience to others. Yep. And, you know, the more friends and family that I have who try to conceive or do conceive and do have babies, like, you can't compare those experiences or you can't say this was better, this was worse. Like, nope. Because everyone is, every experience is different and very rarely is it exactly what people want. Yeah. Yeah. And so true. I just wish it could be easier for everyone. Right. I do. What a, what a beautiful way to kind of wrap this up. This, this idea of like, we do in this community, we just wish that these weren't our stories and we wish that for the others in this community as well. And we love being able to accept people with open arms and let them know that they won't feel this way forever. And we also just get so sad as we watch more and more people be forced to join, right? Mm-hmm. It is kind of like a forced, I'm, I'm glad we have a support, but be forced to join a community that has to do with experiencing trauma during what's supposed to be some of the happiest moments of your life. Yeah, it's definitely a club that you never want to be a part of. So true. Um, yeah. And I mean, you like 
me so grateful for all the support you have in your life. And I just, I felt through my whole experience that I also wanted to take care of those people that were taking care of me. So my family and my friends who were so concerned for me, I just, you know, was trying to be so positive and so like, I'm okay, I'm okay, because I knew they were already hurting enough. And then that just didn't leave enough space for me to also be like that with myself. So yeah, yeah, I just hope that, I don't know, I hope someday we can make it easier. We can get more experience with, I don't know. Yeah. We just hope it will be different, right? We hope the work that we do and the support that we offer, even if we can't prevent all birth trauma, right? That we can at least help people on the other side of it and not have people floundering so much after not understanding what happened, why it happened and how to heal from it. Yeah, exactly. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for taking the time to to share your story with us and to really describe and articulate what it feels like to have not only birth trauma, but now two separate experiences that have been so different. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and please leave us a review so that other people can find this podcast and hopefully get the support and the validation that they're looking for. 